Good morning. Some of you I haven't had a chance to say good morning to yet. Uh, so good to have you. Some uh, I had people walk in telling me how their noses were running and their eyes were watering. And, you know, I was doing real good until they told me that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I had someone, I remember my dad used to say he'd wake up in the morning as he got a little older. And he says, well, I can thank God I'm still here. And uh, I'm alive, and uh, I think that's kind of true with the aching muscles. When our muscles begin to ache a little bit, we can say, well, thank you, Lord, I still have them. And uh, so God is good. He provides for us and meets our needs, and sometimes I find that I'll complain about this or that, and what I ought to do is just stop and say, well, thank you that I have the ability to complain. <laughs> and and uh, we're going on from there, so... Anyway, a couple things are coming up. Don't forget Mother's Day is next week, uh, children and uh, husbands, and this is kind of a day we celebrate our moms, and so we will be doing that here. We have a, a continental breakfast about 30 minutes before the service uh, and in between the services, so I encourage you to be here and take part in that. Ladies, if you're going to women's retreat and you have not yet signed up, please sign up. And uh, or if you have questions about it, you can talk to Darlene and she can give you information concerning that. And then don't forget Decision America, uh, Franklin Graham's tour of California uh, be starting on May the 20th uh, at Grape Day Park. I don't know where Grape Day Park is. Oh, Escondido. OK. And uh, I still don't know where it is. But uh, anyway, be praying for them. They'll be in Modesto the 29th of May, and I'd like to see a number of people from our church going over to that. I think that would be a great time to, to be together. Uh, Santa Clara on the 31st, Berkeley June 1st. So uh, be praying for Franklin Graham as he goes out that God will use him to minister in California and later on in Oregon and Washington. Uh, those are the tours he's going to be making this year, and I think that... Uh, I'm so thankful for that man and uh, the uh, Billy Graham Association as they are continuing to minister, even though Billy's at home with the Lord, uh, continuing to minister throughout our nation and throughout the world and making a difference. And so we can give thanks for that. We're going to continue on with our study. We've just really started getting into it on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I, I think it's important for us to have boundaries uh, if, if you want to have a good relationship with your children, you need to have boundaries for them. They need to know what's expected and not expected and where they can go and where they can't go and what they can do and what they can't do. And in terms of our Heavenly Father, he looks at us and he says, you also need boundaries if you're going to have an effective life. You need to know what's going to be beneficial for you and for others because, you see, our lives impact other people. How we live impacts other people. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, Moses was giving the Ten Commandments once again. They received them in Exodus chapter 20. We saw that. But as we go into Deuteronomy chapter 5, in verse 6, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. 
Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. Don't lie about your neighbor. Number ten, do not covet those things that belong to your neighbor. And so we were getting ready last week to look at that first commandment. And it says, you shall have no other gods before me. God says, I'm a jealous God. I don't want you to put anything else before me. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means this morning. Uh, how does that impact us? And I want to look at two things first. Number one, I want to look at the preeminence of God. Why? Why worship God? Why, why honor God above everything else? What is important about him? You know, it would seem like there are other things in our lives that may be more important. We can't see God. We can't touch God. Uh, we see, do see the evidence of what he does, don't we? In our own lives, we understand how God impacts us. And so God made that statement. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. I want to look at two things this morning as we think of that. Number one is the preeminence of God. Who is he? How, how is he better than everything else? And then number two, I want to look at the fact that God alone is worthy of our worship. And worship, as I look at it today, is a lot more than just singing songs on Sunday morning. Uh, that's kind of for our, us when we're Sunday morning Christians and we come in and that's our worship. But worship goes beyond that to a, a lifestyle. It, it talks about who we are in our relationship with him. And so as, as we look at God, and uh, should have left it where I was, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, God makes an important statement here. And he says, Hear, O Israel. He was speaking to the Israelites at that point. They just come out of the, the nation of Egypt. They were slaves, and now they were set free. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Basically, what we're saying is as, as Jews or as Christians, we are a monotheistic religion. We have one God. God made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are the three within the Godhead, but we are monotheistic. We are not polytheistic. We are not bitheistic. Uh, we have one God. And for the Egyptians, that was a little different. You see, at that time, they had a lot of gods. They, they didn't just worship one God. In fact, they would have thought it was a little bit different to just worship one God. Why would you do that? You know, if one God doesn't meet your need, why don't you go to another God? You know, find somebody that fits the bill. We do that today. Have you ever noticed uh, in our medical practices, you go to a doctor, and that doctor gives you a diagnosis, says you've got this disease. And uh, when we don't like that diagnosis or we're a little questioning that diagnosis, what do we do? We get another doctor. What do you call that? Second opinion. What if we don't like that one? We go to a third one or a fourth one. You know, we're looking for that doctor that's going to say the thing which we want. Well, that's kind of the way it is in a polytheistic religion because if you don't like what one God does, what do you do? You find another God. And that's kind of the way it was in Egypt, and that was what they'd come out of. They had had that kind of experience that, well, this God just doesn't get it, and I need to have another God. But God says, I want you to worship me to the exclusion of everything else. 
Nothing else fits in there. Nothing else comes alongside of me. Uh, I was thinking about how it would work today. How could we envision that? And it's kind of like having an affair. You see, when we get married, the state says you are to have one spouse. For me, that means one wife. And the Bible says I'm to have one wife. And my wife says, you better only have one wife. You better not have two or three or four or five. But, you know, a guy goes out there and he's married to his one wife. And he begins to look around. And all of a sudden he sees this person or gets to know this person. And they build a strong relationship. And all of a sudden he has a relationship over here and he has his wife over here. And... You know, my wife's saying, you better get rid of this one or we're not going to have this one. You don't bring someone alongside. When you have an affair, it's normally not to the exclusion of your spouse. It's you bring them together. You have both. If we were in another nation or in another time, we might have two wives or two husbands. It's called, you know what that's called? Bigamy. And, and then if I want to pick two or three more up, we call that polygamy. Well, that's what we're talking about when we have more than one God. It's polytheistic. It's not monotheistic. And there are a lot of people today that may not realize that they have more than one God. They have more than one thing they worship. Now, today, we don't deal so much with polytheism or bitheism, having two gods, but we deal with monotheism or atheism, which means there's no God. You know, that was one of the things that the Romans and the Greeks didn't like about Christians. They thought that they were atheists because they only had one God. How can you only have one God? That was kind of atheistic. But we have one God, and uh, today there are some people that say there are no gods. Now, the Bible doesn't say a lot about atheism because that wasn't a a big thing back there, but God did say a couple of things. I, I want to look at right here in Psalms 51. Listen to what it says. Actually, it's 53. 53 1. God's kind of tough here on the person that doesn't believe in Him. He says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Oh, they're corrupt, and they've committed abominable injustice where there's no one who does good, and it begins to talk about the sinfulness of man and, and what he's like. But, but the fool, he says, has said there is no God, and yet that tends to be a, a norm within our society today. Uh, it, it's the idea, if you look at the world and the intricacy of the world and the intricacy of of creation and and just how intricate humanity is in, in the universe in which we live and to say it just basically exploded out of nothing what the Bible is really saying is how can you say that how can you begin to think that when you look at, at everything that's there and it just somehow came into being I remember back in uh, when I was in seminary, there was a, 
a creationist that came to the University of Oregon. I was up in Portland. I didn't go down, but a number of my friends from the seminary did. And they were having a debate on creation versus evolution and God versus no God. And after about two hours, the creationist looked at the evolutionist and he says, what you're telling me is that if I took a little vial about like this and I put a little bit of hydrogen or some type of thing in there, a gas or something, and I left it for a few billion years, the end result is that I would have this universe. And he says, that's the crux of your argument. That's what it's about. And what God says here is when we look at the world and we look at the universe today and say that it just came into being out of nothing, he says, that's foolish. That's not realistic. That's not taking time to really evaluate the the whole thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God says, I am the God of the world. I I thought, boy, that was a, a zinger to be able to say that. A guy by the name of J.I. Packer, he's a, a theologian, he wrote in the 70s and the 80s. He, uh, he wrote one book, Knowing God. He wrote another book, uh, Your Father Loves You. And he made this statement. He said, what other gods could we have besides the Lord? And this is where we begin to look at our own lives. He says, plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship were, was the rampage of gluttony and drunkenness and ritual prostitution. For, other, for, for us, there are still the great gods of sex and shekels in the stomach, <laughs> an unholy tr- trinity constituting one god, self. The other enslaving trio, pleasure and possessions and position, whose God is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, from 1 John 2.16. For others, their gods may be football, the firm, the family. They're also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless. Or anything that anyone allows to run their life becomes their god. The claimants claimants, uh, for this prerogative are legion. In a matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is, many, is a many-headed monster. And I asked last week, <clears throat> if you took time just to evaluate what you think about when you have free time, what is it that consumes, excuse me, what is it that consumes your thoughts? What is it that is the priority in your life? What takes the place of God or comes alongside of God? And so we realize that we have this one God. God says, I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, and you're to worship me only. And so I want to talk about the fact that God alone is worthy of our worship. Uh, The first thing is, let me give you three things. Number one is his creative ability. Genesis 1, chapter 1. Do you remember that one? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He is that that one who brought about all this intelligent design that brought the universe together as it is today and and created it and brought it into existence. He created the heaven and the earth and created all the things that are there and he created them for our benefit, but he also created them for his benefit, for his glory. Jesus made that statement. It says, uh, 
All things were created by him, and they were created for him. If you create something, you, you make something, okay? What do you usually do that for? Just because you want to make something, throw it away? If you create a, uh, an apple pie. Whoa, how many of you like apple pie? Okay, we're good then. You create an apple pie. Do you just create that to go, oh, there's an apple pie? Or what do you create that for? To delight yourself. To enjoy. To eat it. Uh, we, we don't have quite so many made today. Darlene used to make lots of apple pies. But, but we buy more of them and you cook them and they're great. Or you go to, where do you go to get your apple pie? Costco, exactly. Costco has great apple pies. They have even better pumpkin pies. But we create them for what? To enjoy. If you want to know something, God created the earth for his enjoyment, for his benefit. And back in the book of Isaiah in the 64th chapter, Isaiah 64, it, it makes a, a statement concerning who God is. In 64 verse 8, It says, uh, but now the Lord, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. And he says, we are clay and you our potter. For all of us are the work of your hand. It's kind of the idea that if, if we're the clay and God's the potter, he determines what we're going to look like. You get that potter wheel, and the, and the potter begins to spin that clay on that wheel, and he begins to work it with his hands, and he makes it look beautiful, and he may make it into a flower base. He may make it into just a little bowl for something else. He can create anything he wants. But it's for his benefit. It's for what he wants. Does the clay tell the potter what the clay wants to be? No. The potter determines what the clay is going to be, and that's really what it's talking about here. It says that he is the potter and we are the clay, and so we fit his design, and, and he is worthy of worship because of that. If a person fails to worship God, we see it in Romans chapter 1, in verse 21 to 23. It says what they did was, rather than worshiping the potter, it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of, in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, it's so easy to get caught up with the stuff. Today, it may be Technological things. Maybe the computers we have. It may be the television. It may be uh, any number of things that, that we become so consumed with that they take the place of God. He's no longer important to us because we're caught up with all of these other things. Oh, we may go to church on Sunday and we may sit in a service and we may worship as, as a body for a while, but then we go home and, and he's not there. You see, because everything else kind of infringes on him the bible we were studying it says he is yahweh he is the great i am he is the self-existent one 
and he brings value only because of himself. It isn't because of us. Our value comes from our creator. Did you ever think about that? The value you have today is because, number one, God created you, and number two, he created you in his image, and he created everything you have for you. And that's where our value comes from. That's what makes me worthwhile. That's what makes you worthwhile is because of what God has done for us. And because of that, he, he deserves our worship. Not only does he deserve it because he created us and created all things in his creative ability, but he also is our redeemer, our savior. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20 where we've been studying and you go to the second verse there, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I redeemed you. He was talking to the Israelites and he made them free. And uh, had any other gods done that for them? No. But you remember what they did when Moses went up on the mountain? He was gone just a little while, and all of a sudden they came to Aaron, and they said, make us a new god. Make us a golden calf, and we'll worship that calf. Because you see, the bull was one of the great gods of Egypt. And we'll claim that he's the one that brought us out of out of slavery, and, and the Bible says that's not true. He didn't. It was only God who did that. And, and for us, we need to understand that God is our Redeemer. He is the one who brought us up out of the miry darkness. And I go back to this passage so often because it means so much to me as, as I think about it. But in, Gala in Colossians chapter 1, it's, it's that 13th verse. And time and time again, when I begin to think of the fact that God has redeemed me and he set me free. It says he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He reached down and drew us up to him, and I talked about that last week. And, you know, we just have to stop and realize that without God, we weren't redeemed. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. We're going to come to the communion service in a few moments. And we reflect back upon what Jesus did for us. But I want you just to envision for a moment what might it be like in glory? What might it be like in heaven? Don't, don't get with the clouds and the angels with harps and all those kinds of things and the white robes. And I think they probably have white robes, but, but all of those other things, don't get caught up with that. But you think about what it was like when Jesus was there. And if you go back to Revelation and you hear the, the seraphim, the cherubim, and they're crying out and they're worshiping God and they're worshiping the Lamb. And Jesus was there. That's where he was. And just as God looked down on the Israelites in Egypt and said, I need to bring them a redeemer. So he looked down on lost humanity and he says, I need to bring them a redeemer. And he sent his one and only son for us. And he paid the penalty for our sins. And, and we have been so snagged and so caught up by that sin. I was talking with the men yesterday and we were talking about David and Goliath and how David was going to defeat Goliath. But we talked about how sin so easily entangles us, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it pulls us down and it grabs us and it holds on to us. And it doesn't let us free. It destroys our lives. And yet Jesus left that place of glory 
and he became a human. And he lived among us for one purpose. And that was to go to the cross that he might redeem us. It glorified the Father. But it benefited you and me. You see, without that, we're still caught up in our sin. It still controls us. And so God's worthy of our worship because of the fact that he redeemed us. And we need to stop time and time again and, and look back and realize what God did for us and how he changed us and changed our lives. He alone is, is, is worthy of our commandments. Why are we to obey the commandments? Because that's what God did for us. He redeemed us. And he alone is worthy of our worship. I, I think back when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Satan came to him and he says, you know, Jesus, he says, if you'll just bow down before me. He says, you know, I, I've got this world out here. And, and at that point, Satan had usurped the kingdom of God in that world. He was the prince of the power of the air. And he says, you look at all these people. He says, you've come to die for them. He says, if you'll just bow down before me and worship me, you know what I'll do? I'll give it to you. And you won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to endure the shame. You won't have to go through all of that. Jesus said, the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God and worship him only. God said, I am the Lord your God. He said to the Israelites who brought you out of the land of Egypt, to you and I, I am the Lord you God who brought you out of the kingdom of sin. I am the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God and serve him only. You shall have no other gods before me. I asked those three questions last week as, as we were moving along, just thinking of the sermon that was to come and I hope that you took time to think about that I know that some said they did and the one was what I mentioned earlier what or who do you think about when you have free time it consumes your mind what, what keeps you from having that full rich relationship with God I think that's an important question to ask the second one is, who are you trying to impress? When you get up and go to work in the morning, is your goal to impress your boss? Or is it to impress God? I'll tell you what, if you impress God, you'll impress your boss. Because you'll serve him properly. Is it to impress your spouse? Or is it to impress God? If you impress God, you'll most likely impress your spouse also. But if we get off center and we begin to focus on something else, then we aren't going to please God very well. Are you a God pleaser or a people pleaser? Who are you living for? That's what that first commandment's all about. It says, you shall have no other God before me.
you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, what consumes my thoughts? What consumes my days? If I'm honoring God, my family life's going to be right. But if I'm not, I'm going to struggle to honor my wife. If I'm honoring God, I'll most likely honor you as a church. But if I'm not, we may struggle. If I'm honoring God with my home, I'll probably make my neighbors feel good. But if I'm not, then I'm going to struggle with them because they're not going to be happy with the way my home is. Who do you honor? God made that statement. He said, you shall have no other God before me. And that's a very serious comment. How does he fit into my life? And do I truly honor him? Or is it my desire to honor him in every aspect? We're going to get into some of those others, like you shall have no other idols before me. Uh, That can be a lot of things. You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. What does that mean to us today? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? When I was a kid, that simply meant you didn't swear. When I studied the passage, I found it goes a long ways beyond that. Because it has to do with my calling myself a Christian and how I live. And do I honor God or is it empty as a Christian? Christian. So it's important that we go back and we start out with that first one. You shall have no other gods before me. I want you to go home this week and think about where God is in your life and where he fits and how you serve him and how you honor him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and I think of this message, and there's so much that I would want to convey and that you would want me to convey, and hard to get a handle on it in some ways, Father, and when we begin to think about you're not to have any other God before me, no other God comes alongside of me, because we live in a world where we go at a rapid pace, and there is so much going on, and there is so much that grabs our attention, and so much that we think is important, and sometimes... The priorities get a little out of whack. Forgive us, Father, for when that happens. Forgive us for when we get caught up with things other than you. We we look at our world today, and I hear about people killing people. I hear about broken marriages. I hear about kids that struggle because they feel they've been rejected. I hear about all these kinds of things, Father. And I know it all stems back to our relationship with you. Where does it fit? Help us, Father, to truly be God-fearing. Help us to truly be individuals who keep that first commandment. 
you shall have no other God before me. Help us to make you that priority. It's a serious thing, Father. And help us to understand what it means to each and every one of us. Help us to honor you, Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.